Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our series on Revelation this summer. Fortunately, I get maybe the least controversial passage in the whole book. But what an awesome passage it is. I remember as a new believer, I came to Christ when I was 17 through a friend. And I remember the the joy of what God was doing in my life at that point. I remember that, that black hole in my heart that had been there all my life that I knew was there was gone, that, that something had changed internally. I began to get into fellowship, and I really enjoyed the fellowship in the church with other believers, small groups, and, and growing in that. I saw God begin to change my life internally, and I was able to begin to make different choices in my life. And I remember a number of times in those first few years thinking, wow, if this is Christianity, this is great. I'm so glad I came to Christ. But four years in, after I first made that commitment to Christ, I went through a time of about nine months of depression. None of it worked anymore. Life wasn't so fun. Fellowship wasn't so great. It was really hard. It was a difficult time for me, and I almost gave up on God. Fortunately, he didn't give up on me. But as I look back and think about my life at that point, I was thinking about what was I putting my hope in? I was putting my hope in the idea that, well, God would make my life better here on earth. I think that's something that many of us fall into 
as Christians. We all think that, after all, if God's sovereign, all-powerful, and he's all-loving, then, of course, in his sovereignty, he's going to make our lives better. Right? That's what he'll do. And, and there are some passages in the Old Testament that seem to reinforce that thinking. But let me just say that that idea, putting your hope that somehow God's going to make my life better here on earth, is wrong thinking. It's putting our hope in the wrong thing. God actually promises that if we're going to follow him, we will suffer here on earth. Yes, he'll walk with us. Yes, he'll give us the strength in the suffering. But we will suffer great affliction and life will be hard. Therefore, we must put our hope elsewhere. But there is a lot of pressure on us in this world to try to get our hope and our fulfillment and our life out of this world, this life, isn't there? I mean, Babylon, we've talked through the book of Revelation, Babylon, which represents the whole world system in which we live. It promises us that if you just trust in this world, if you just trust in money, if you just trust in sex, if you just trust in power, If you just trust in a big enough army, if you just trust in violence or or whatever, your life will go well. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie. And if that's where our hope is, we'll be in trouble. And unfortunately, today, and I, and I, I do this very very cautiously, but I think it's important to say that there are Christian theologies today that reinforce this wrong thinking and that do great damage to Christians because of that. One of those theologies is the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity doctrine, prosperity gospel. And uh, they did a survey recently that said in America, 40% of evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, are being taught today a prosperity gospel. I think it's very dangerous. What is the prosperity gospel that's taught by many TV preachers in a number of churches right here in this area? Well, it's that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy on earth. You don't have to suffer if you just have enough faith. If you just believe hard enough, things will go well in your life. And you'll be healthy, you won't get sick, and you'll be wealthy. Well, let me just say that that's just not true. (laughs) And in fact, those who teach that get sick (laughs) and they die. You see, they can't avoid suffering either, no matter what they teach. And some interpretations of the book of Revelation cause people to think, oh, I don't have to suffer. Jesus is going to come back. I'm going to avoid tribulation. I'm going to avoid suffering. It's going to be great. I just think if that takes us to a place where we think life on earth should go well, then we're in trouble. You see, the truth is, those are false hopes in this world. It's just not true to Scripture. Think about Jesus. If anybody, if that was true, then Jesus wouldn't have suffered. Who suffered more than anyone? Jesus. All the great saints through the Scriptures suffered. Joseph suffered. Paul suffered. Peter suffered. I could, Stephen died, I could go on and on, right? And the danger of it is that kind of thinking that somehow this world should go well 
if I just have enough faith, leads to one of two things. Either an arrogance that says, my life's going well, yours isn't. (laughs) You just don't have enough faith. Or, more likely, it's going to lead to shame and guilt because, gee, my life's not going so well. So I must not have enough faith. But the truth of Scripture is that we are called to suffering. We are called, and that's the truth of Revelation, right? As we've seen over and over again, it's a call to remain faithful in the face of difficulty and suffering, despite opposition, knowing that the Lamb will conquer in the end. So our hope must be not in this life going well, but, as we'll see today, in the new heaven And the new earth when we will be with him forever. And that's why the book of Revelation and in fact, the entire Bible (laughs) ends with this passage we're looking at today. Next week, Josh will wrap up the last few verses. But really, this section we're looking at today is the end of the whole Bible, the end of the book of Revelation, because it's that hope that we have to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the Christian's true hope. So let's pray, and then we'll look together at this great hope we have to come. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revelation and what it's already taught us. And today, Lord, as we look at the new heaven and the new earth that you promised us, may our hearts be inflamed with hope in what you have for us to be with you, to be the bride of Christ in your very presence. May your spirit open our eyes and our hearts to what we have to look forward to in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is our true hope to be then? Well, first of all, that we will have a new home, a new home. It's called the new heaven and new earth. 21 Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We saw last week, Josh taught, how in chapters 19 and 20, Satan's defeated. Evil is defeated. And so now what? Well, what's next is that God fulfills his plan to renew all of creation through making a new heaven and a new earth. And most all of us have this idea that someday when we die, we're going to go to heaven, right? That's not what it says. It says there'll be a new heaven and new earth. In fact, we will be on this earth, but a recreated earth that'll be so much greater than anything we've experienced here. God transforms this heaven and earth into a new one. We get to be here. But it will be remade, healed, perfect. And and let me just say, as we go through this, God, God ends the Bible with this wonderful description of this new heaven and new earth. So we will engage our imaginations and put our hope in that future life so that that will color everything we experience here on earth. And we will stay faithful no matter what suffering we might experience here on earth. As I have walked with many of you through great suffering, and I think of some in our body that are now struggling with terminal illness, I've watched your faith and your hope in heaven grow and grow and grow. And it's 
It's exactly what God calls us to, that our hope should be in heaven for all of us. That that's what we long for, that that's what we're built for. So our hope should not be in this life. When Jeannie and I uh, got engaged over 38 years ago, almost 39 years ago, that changed everything. (laughs) When we got engaged, all of a sudden, everything was geared towards our wedding day. And in the six and a half months we were engaged, we were planning, we were thinking about it, we were getting ready for it, we were looking forward to it. There are many things about engagement that are frustrating because you're not there yet, and yet you're looking forward to it. That's really what life on earth is meant to be, brothers and sisters, is looking forward to our wedding day as the bride of Christ is And it should color everything we do here on earth as we look forward to that wonderful, wonderful day. And so what will this new heaven and new earth be like? Well, the first thing he says is that the sea will pass away. It will be no more. Why? Why is that true? I like the ocean. Okay, maybe you do, too. But throughout the scriptures, the sea is the picture of chaos It's a picture of evil. One of the beasts comes out of the sea back in chapter 13, verse 1. See, the fact there'll be no sea is a picture and means that there'll be no earthquakes, no storms, no tsunamis, no crime, no mass shootings. You see, all the forces that threaten to destroy us on earth will be gone. There'll be no sea. There'll be nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to fear. And then he goes on in verse 2 to describe what this new heaven and new earth will be like. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, many of us live in Idaho because we love the great outdoors, right? (laughs) We love nature. And many of us feel closest to God when we're in nature. The Garden of Eden was a garden. And so we connect with that, don't we? (laughs) And so, John, we think new heavens and new earth. We're going to have beautiful nature. Well, I think we will. But notice what he describes it as. He describes it as a holy city, as a city. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that strikes me initially as what? I don't really like cities. You know, they're smelly. (laughs) They tend to be places of fear, of greater crime and violence, even in the Bible. People don't make eye contact in cities, right? Because they're just trying to maintain a little bit of of self-identity in this mass and hordes of people that are overwhelming. So why does he describe the new heaven and the new earth primarily as a city? Well, imagine with me a city where there is no crime, there is no evil. We dwell together and People are perfect, holy, and love God perfectly. And we all make eye contact and we feel loved and cared for by every person who looks at us. 
You see, a city is a good representation of heaven because the most important thing about heaven next to our intimacy with God is our intimacy with one another, where we will dwell together in perfect, perfect harmony. The original creation was Eden, a garden. We live in the corrupt creation, which our sin has just made a mess of. But the mature creation will be more than a garden, more than Eden, even greater, because we will be the redeemed people living together in this new heaven and new earth. And it will be fabulous. Where everyone will be fully and equally and completely valued. Verse 3 describes also this new heaven and the and new earth will be a place where we will have a, a sense of intimacy with God, his constant presence. And as you look through the rest of this passage, we'll see this over and over again. It's that intimacy with God that is the most important thing of heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. Okay, John, we get the point. <laughs> He says over and over again, we'll be together with God. We'll be dwelling with him. We'll be one with him. Finally, completely. We can know him now in part, but we will know him. We will be known and we will know completely. And it'll be incredibly fabulous to be one with him. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. The word that's used here is is that he will tabernacle with us. He will dwell with us, like the Old Testament temple, like Jesus tabernacled with us, John 1.14. He will tabernacle with us in heaven. We'll be one with him. And in verse 4, he describes that this new heaven and the new earth will contain a complete reversal of the fall. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any more, for the former things have passed away. All of the junk that our sin brought to this world will be taken away. There'll be no death, no loss, no pain. It'll all be gone. The dark cloud that shadows everything in this world, even the best day in this world, that cloud will be gone. Can you imagine the wonder of such a world? A creation with all evil gone. No mosquitoes. Awesome. (laughs) No growing old. No arthritis. No migraines. No heart disease. No stomach flu like I had this week. (laughs) No cancer. No depression. All that gone. The fall will be reversed and the new heavens and new earth will be incredible. So if that's how great it is, then who gets in? (laughs) Well, now he tells us. Notice verse five through eight. Well, let me start with six. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers or overcomes will have this heritage this inheritance, and I will be his and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Who gets to be in this new creation? It's simply those who come thirsty, who admit they need his life, who come and surrender to him and drink deeply of what he has done for us on the cross. Those who admit their need and experience grace. Those are the ones that get to experience the new heaven and the new earth. It says also those who overcome will inherit all this. What does that mean in those who overcome? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, the overcoming is used a number of times. And basically what that's describing is those who stay faithful in the face of affliction. But that's all by grace, too. It's simply those whose grace has so touched their lives that they're able to keep clinging to him even in the midst of struggle and difficulty. So even that is all of grace. That's who gets in. Who doesn't get in? Interesting, the words he uses. The cowardly. The second word, the unbelieving. That makes sense, right? Those who haven't trusted Jesus. The last one, liars. What's he getting at here? And why is cowardly first? Well, in the book of Revelation, it's an exhortation to, again, stay faithful to him in the midst of affliction. And so he's challenging our thinking to say, are we people who are courageous, who cling to Jesus, who stay faithful to him no matter what we go through? Do we continue to believe in him rather than believing the lie? Do we become liars? Do we believe Babylon and what she's lied to us about, about where life comes from? Or do we cling to him and what God says? And do we stay faithful to him? Because it's those who are clinging to the lie, to Babylon, who are afraid to trust Jesus, who hunker down and try to protect their own lives out of fear instead of giving their lives to him, the cowardly who will not experience the new heaven and the new earth. So the new heaven and new earth will be a new home for us. Secondly, he goes on in the next section to talk about not only will we have a new home, but we will be a new people. We will be transformed. Now, as he begins this section, starting in verse 9, there's a formula we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. It's happened several times. One of the key Places is back in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, where John hears something, but what he sees is surprising. And here, well, in chapter 5, it says, John hears the angels say, I will show you the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you're ready for that, right? And then what he sees is what? A slain lamb. He's expanding our vision of who Jesus is. Here, notice what it says in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so we are geared up to see the bride. What's this bride going to look like? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So you expect a bride, but what you see is a city. So John's setting us up to say, 
Okay, this is a metaphor. This is a picture. So he wants us to look at the city and say, what does this say about us? About the people of God? What kind of comparison is he trying to draw when he says, because we're the bride. So what is he telling us about what we will be like in the new creation? Well, first, I think he says this will be uh, all exclusive, all inclusive, all inclusive community. Notice verse 11 and following. This will have the glory of God. It's radiance like a rare jewel. Verse 12. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then he goes on to measure the city, it says, and the city is so big, it's 12,000 stadia, which is almost 1,500 miles square. So what's he trying to say through all this? Well, notice there's... 12 gates, every direction, there's three gates, there's room, there's access for everybody. (laughs) Notice it includes at the gates, the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, all the Jews, all the Old Testament saints and all the Jews throughout history will be there, part of this bride of Christ. And the 12 apostles are the foundation stones. In other words, all the New Testament believers, Gentiles, all of us will be there. This is a community that is all inclusive. And then why this huge city, 1,500 miles each direction, this huge square? Well, as a number of commentators have noticed, that was approximately the size of the entire Roman Empire of the day. What's he trying to say? I think he's trying to say that everybody is welcome. (laughs) This is an all-inclusive community. We can all come if we'll only surrender to the Lamb and what he has done. Everybody can come. There's room for everybody in this massive place. What does this tell us? It tells us that the church should be the most inclusive community on earth. Everyone is welcome. We should love each other and love one another because that's what we'll be doing in heaven. We'll be looking in each other's eyes and experiencing and giving the love of Christ to one another. We'll have perfect intimacy with one another. I love my wife and we have great intimacy. But what we have with one another, you know, when Jesus says that interesting thing, there were there will, won't be marriage in heaven. Some of us go, wow, you know, I, I don't want to not be close to my wife. You know what? You'll be so much more close to your spouse than you ever were. And you'll have incredible intimate relationships with everybody. <laughs> That's why you don't need marriage. It'll be fabulous. It'll be an all, all-inclusive community. And then we... The bride of Christ will be incredibly beautiful. Notice verse 18 and following. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire. He goes on to talk about all these incredibly jewels, incredible jewels. And the 12 gates are 12 pearls. 
It's an amazingly beautiful description. But remember, this is a metaphor. He's describing us. This is, I believe, meant to be in contrast with Babylon, the harlot that we saw a few chapters back. Remember the harlot, you look and she's got precious gold and jewels hanging around her neck and she's all made up. She looks pretty good from a distance. It's talking about the world system around us. But the closer you get, the more grotesque you realize she really is. And there's no real beauty to her. But what God is doing with us is he is recreating us, even now preparing us for heaven. This momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. We are becoming more and more like him, and we will be incredibly glorious and beautiful in heaven. (laughs) Doesn't that sound wonderful? I'm ready to be done with my sin here. Uh, I'm ready to quit struggling with this fallen nature that still just clings to me too often. But all sin will be taken out of us, and all that will be left will be precious and beautiful and valuable. And how I long for that day. And again, what's most important about us in heaven is we will be the bride of Christ. And if you read through this passage, we don't have time to read it all, but it's all about intimacy with him, really. We will be his bride. We will be so intimate with Jesus that only marriage, the most intimate relationship on earth, at least for most of us. Now, please, if you're single, don't hear this as putting down singleness in any way. If you're single, you can have amazingly intimate relationships as well and have a taste of this exact thing. Remember David and Jonathan? David said, oh, your love is greater than that of women. So just understand the most intimate relationship you experience on earth. Only that language can approximate the incredible intimacy we will have with Jesus. But it's not even a thousand. It's a thousand times better. Our intimacy with him when we see him face to face and we will be like him. And the description of the city here, just to highlight this, is it's 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 high. It's a cube. And you say, why is it a cube? Well, as many commentators have pointed out, what else was a cube in Scripture? The Holy of Holies in the temple. It was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. And so the whole city now, remember the Holy of Holies in the temple? No one could go in there except the high priest once a year. But now the whole city is the Holy of Holies where God dwells. And we are together in his presence, intimate with him, experiencing his love, experiencing his life. And over in chapter 22, verse four says they will see his face talking about us. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. He will have complete ownership of us. He will be our life. He will be everything to us. And finally, we will have not only a new home and and be new ourselves, but we will have an eternal purpose in heaven. In chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, I just read one of the verses, but... 
Notice um, there'll be this river of life flowing through it, a picture from Ezekiel. There's so many Old Testament references here. Through the middle of the street, and there'll be the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each, each month. No longer, verse 3, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What will we be doing in heaven? Well, first of all, we'll be worshiping him, seeing him as he really is, and our hearts will be lifted up in praise. And we saw a picture of that way back in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. I encourage you to go back and read that if you want to know what worship will be like in heaven. So we'll be worshiping him. We will, as this verse says, be serving him. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but he will give us tasks to do. Heaven will not be just floating around on a cloud. In fact, okay, get that image out of your mind. We will be on earth, the new heaven and the new earth and the new creation, and we will have tasks to do. We will be busy. We will not be bored, and we will delight in serving him. And then finally, verse 5 says this, Night and day will be no, night will be no more. There'll be no need of lamp of light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever. We will reign in heaven. What we were always created to do to reign with him. What what will we reign over? Well, there's hints that we'll reign over angels. We'll reign over the new creation. We we're originally called to rule over the animals. So maybe the animals in heaven, but it will be Wonderful. We'll have plenty to do, and it'll be fabulous working with him. What will the new creation be like? All the best things of this world. (laughs) Only made so much better, a thousand times better. And with all the bad removed, heaven and earth together in perfect harmony. And all that you've ever longed for, truly longed for in your heart, will be fulfilled there. So what does this mean For us today. Well, again, it's a challenge to put our hope in heaven, not in this world. To let our imaginations be connecting ourselves to heaven in a way where we long for that day when we will be standing with Jesus as his bride. And we finally get to be with him, our slain lamb, forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. And in the meantime, we are called to follow Jesus in suffering. To not be seduced by Babylon and by the false theologies and philosophies of this world that say, no, your life's here. That's a lie. But live in the reality of the new heavens and the new earth like you're engaged, waiting for that wedding day. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
The kingdom of God is already partially here, so we are called to live as citizens of that new kingdom, the new creation. So the challenge for us is not to live for this world. So how do we do that? We, we deepen our intimacy with Jesus. We live as citizens of heaven by deepening our intimacy with Jesus, by living as his servants now, by learning to reign with him even now, and by caring for creation and in loving others, and ultimately by living lives of such beauty that others will be drawn to want to know him and have the hope that we have as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible picture you've given us just in words that even don't even begin to describe the glory of what's coming. But thank you for that taste. May our hearts be drawn to put our hope in you and what you have for us to come. And as we sing now, may our hearts be lifted up in praise to you and in longing for that new creation that you have prepared for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.